Good evening to you also. Second Samuel chapter 7 this evening. Our journey through the scriptures. If you're with us tonight and uh, you are without a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have a Bible and they'll get it into your hands if you just get their attention so that you can follow along with us this evening. We like everybody to see the Bible with their own eyes. Now it came to pass when the king, King David, was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David at this time in his life and ministry, he is the king of a united Israel. And uh, life is very, very good for him at this point in time. He has peace related to his enemies. He has uh, united the nation together, uh, Judah and all the other 11 tribes. Jerusalem is now the capital uh, of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is in the city of, of Jerusalem. And God has just blessed him and has prospered him. He also lives in a home that is made of stone and made of beautiful cedar wood. And in those days, a house just didn't get any better than that, to be built like that. And as David kind of sits in that place, and it's a really a beautiful characteristic, really, of any, any godly man or woman. He looks at how God has blessed him. And rather than sitting down and saying, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger barns, his attention and his focus goes to the Lord. He recognizes how good God has been to him, that God has given him this position and given him this material prosperity, not for him just to use it for himself and whoever dies with the most toys wins kind of a thing, but he realizes God has given him this position in order for it to be influential for the kingdom of God. And so he turns his focus out and says, I want my life to make a difference for God here. And and so he has, as he looks at all of these things that the natural man would look at and say, this is what life is all about. This is as good as as it gets. We just, you know, upgrade from here. He looked at it and in his heart, something's wrong with this picture. What am I doing living in a house made of stone carved stone and in a house of cedar and the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem is sitting inside of a tent or inside of a tabernacle. I have a permanent place to live. God has given the nation of Israel a permanent place, it appears, in, in human history. And yet God's presence, the symbol of his presence, that Ark of the Covenant is still in a a, in a tent, a, a temporary kind of dwelling place. And it just seems inconsistent to him. He doesn't, it doesn't sit right with him. So he has an idea, and it's a good idea. It's, it comes out of a beautiful, pure motive in his, in his heart. And his idea is, if I can live in a house like this, then God deserves a house. God deserves a temple in which we can put that Ark of the Covenant and we can come then to that place and worship the Lord. Now, David didn't want to do anything apart from the Lord's approval. And, and so, even though it's a great idea and a good idea in his mind, he takes this idea to Nathan, who is a spiritual counselor to him, Nathan the prophet, and he wants to clear it with God. Well, as he brings the proposal to Nathan, Nathan looks at it just with the bare eye and the bare mind. He can't see anything wrong with that as an idea. I mean, it's such a great idea. I mean, how could that be anything but something that would bless God? Of course, God is going to say uh, yes to that. And so Nathan says to David, do all that's in your heart. God is in this. It's his leading. He's the one that's prompted you to do this. And so go for it. And so he speaks on God's behalf without having revelation from God. And so prophets have to be careful of that. We have to be careful of that. 
as we speak for the Lord, to make sure that if we're going to speak in the name of the Lord into somebody else's life, that we have actually sought the Lord and we have a word from the Lord for that person from the word of God. And so everything looks like this is just a no brainer. Let's, you know, go for it and build this permanent house of worship for the Lord. And so Nathan, he gives that answer and and uh, to him tells David, go ahead and move forward uh, with this idea that he has. Well, it's a great idea in the minds of two men at this point. But the Lord isn't interested in what's being proposed in quite the timetable in the way that David has in mind. And so it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan. You ever said something to somebody or done something in the name of the Lord? That in the middle of the night, (laughs) he talked to you about that. It's a fairly miserable place, actually. I'll tell you, he is wonderful in his ability to get through to us. And so the Lord comes and speaks to Nathan. And he says, all right, Nathan, here's what I really would have wanted you to speak related to David's proposal. Go and tell my servant David. That's how he saw David as a servant. David wants to build this for me. The fact that he wants to build this thing for me is a good thing. It represents a servant's heart on David's part toward me. I'm going to say no to it, but his heart is right in in proposing this. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up From Egypt, we're talking about hundreds of years now, even to this day. But instead of having a permanent house of worship, I have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. And more and wherever I have moved about with the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God speaks about this proposal of David, and he declares that he's been perfectly content to travel with God's people by virtue of of a tent and to be worshipped in a tent. And, of course, a tent was um, a physical necessity in terms of having a place to worship the Lord thus far in Israel's history because they were a pilgrim people. They were a moving people. You couldn't build a tabernacle of, you know, stone and cedar someplace because in a week the Lord would be liable to move them someplace else. So a tent was just perfect for that time in their history. They had a, 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 a movie. They were a moving people, a pilgrim people, and they had a moving God. And that's just the way that it needed to be. So practically speaking, a temple up to this point wasn't something that could even be considered. He also makes note to David that uh, he's, he's a, he wanted everyone to realize that he hadn't complained about the current circumstances. <laughs> he, was happy with the, he was happy with the tent. He was happy with the tabernacle. He said, what, what kind of a tabernacle is this? Why isn't somebody thinking about getting me in some kind of really fancy thing? He didn't consider that tabernacle to be a reflection on him in terms of, of, of the people, not getting him something better. So God hadn't complained and he hadn't asked for something permanent. And he said, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, again, he he loves David, David, your heart's right in this whole thing and all. Thus says the Lord of hosts, he he said, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people. He's going to speak to David about the good things that he's done for David. You could not come from a lower place in life and become a king than to come from being a shepherd over sheep. I don't know what the lowest position is in our society. I'm not going to. To venture a guess, because I'll offend somebody. But you can think of it for yourself. 
whatever you would guess would be the absolute lowest position that a person could have in life, and then think about that person ultimately becoming the President of the United States of America. That's how unlikely it was that David would ever become the King of Israel. It was all grace that God had extended to him. I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people. Aren't you glad for where the Lord has taken you from and taken you to? Doesn't mean we change uh, occupations or we change neighborhoods, but just where he has taken us from our background and our, our history and the great thing that he has made of us in Christ. And I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I and have cut off your enemies from before you. All of his victories of David. It wasn't David was a great warrior. He was a strong man. He was talented. All of these things. But all of his success was due to God. God said, I've done that. And I have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. David's name, when it's used all around the world today, 3,000 years later, it's still one of the great names in human history, not just among the Jews, all around the world. That's what God had done for David. And David said, and the Lord said to him, and what the Lord is doing here is he is respectfully declining David's offer to build him this uh, uh, temple, this permanent place of worship. It's a great idea. It's a wonderful idea. comes from a pure motive. God is pleased with the heart that it flows out of, and yet he still says no to it. Says, no, I don't, I don't want you to do it, David. And so he says no. And he said, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in the place of their own and move no more. And nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. God is speaking and saying, in essence, recounting what he's done through David. And that is, he has given the children of Israel a permanent place with borders in the world, a nation called Israel. So they, for the first time in their history, David is taken and he's gone in and he's defeated the enemies within the land, the enemies outside of the land, so that the Jews fully possess what God had promised to them from the time of, of Joshua. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house is the promise he makes to David. David, you want to make me a house. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make you a house. He's going to elaborate on that a little bit in verse 16. And when your days are fulfilled, you will rest with your fathers and I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Speaking of Solomon, who was not yet born. And he shall build and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David is informed by God there is going to be a temple built for me. Things have changed. My people are now in a permanent place and it is a time to build this temple that you're proposing. But you won't build it, David, your uh, your son coming son, who we know is, is Solomon, is going to build that temple. Now, it, it's not mentioned here, but it, it gets mentioned later in First Chronicles and, and then later in First Kings that um, David, the Lord spoke to David uh, in kind of a greater elaboration of, of, of his revelation to them that, that's there. And the Lord uh, spoke to Solomon, actually, and uh, or David spoke to Solomon and declared that the Lord had spoken to him and said that he could not build the temple because he had shed so much blood, not innocent blood, but he'd shed blood. 
And so God said to him, listen, because you have shed so much blood in battle and in war, I don't want you to build this temple for me. I want your son to build it for me. So there was nothing wrong with the battles that David fought. There was nothing wrong with the blood that he shed. But God, for his own reasons, wanted the temple to be built by a man who was reigning during a time of peace because he's a God of peace supremely. And, and so this is, this is why David was not allowed to build uh, the, the temple. God was blessed by the desire of David. In 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, we're told at the dedication of the, uh, the new temple when Solomon ultimately built it, he declared, Now it was in, my father, in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. And nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall come out of your loins, he shall build the house for my name. And so the Lord was pleased with this. He just didn't want David to build it, but Solomon would build it. And I will be his father, speaking of Solomon, and he shall be my son, the Lord said. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. I will discipline him. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And then verse 16, the Lord uh, said to him, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And according to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, when God spoke here to um, David and uh, about the fact that he would establish his uh, uh, his kingdom established his throne forever. David rightly understood that to as God communicating to him that the Messiah would be born through his lineage, be a part of his bloodline. And, and so the Lord is essentially saying to David, you desire to build me a house, a place of, of permanence in the midst of this nation. Instead, I'm going to build you a house, verse 16, and I will give you a place of permanence in the history of this nation. Your son's going to build the temple, but even more than that, the Messiah, the coming king, whose reign and whose kingdom is never going to end, will come of your lineage. And so it referred to the coming of the promised Messiah, who we know to be Jesus. Now, God gives his stamp of approval upon this understanding of David and David is going to praise the Lord in just a moment for this. He's absolutely undone by God's promise here. But in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's clear that David's interpretation here was correct. Isaiah chapter uh, six, famous, famous verse. Isaiah declared for unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And then here it is. Upon the throne of David, and this is all about the Messiah, all about Jesus. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so Isaiah, by the spirit of God, recognized that this, that God had spoken to David was a promise that the Messiah would come through his bloodline. In the New Testament, we see the same thing confirmed really over and over and over again. In Luke chapter one, when the angel of the Lord came to Mary, uh, announcing the fact that she would give birth to the Messiah, uh, he said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the highest 
and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Paul writes as he opens the letter to the church at Rome. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And so there is the recognition here that what is being promised to David is that the coming Messiah will be born in his bloodline. So when we go through the scriptures and we look at the prophecies concerning the Messiah, we see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God declared concerning the Messiah's bloodline, he would be born of, uh, of the seed of a woman. And then further, God declared that he would be of the seed of Abraham. And then further, that he would be born of the tribe of Judah. And now we're told that even within the tribe of Judah, of which David was a part, that the Messiah, when he came into the world, would be of the lineage of David. And God just narrows this bloodline narrower and narrower and narrower as a part of all of his prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, so that when Jesus came on the scene, we wouldn't have to guess whether he is the Messiah or not. We could look at the criteria that God laid out in the Old Testament, the promises concerning him, the prophecies, and then look at Jesus' life, including his bloodline, and then conclude on the basis of the Scriptures whether he was the Messiah or not. And so it's a beautiful thing whenever you whenever you hear a preacher, namely me, if you attend here, but really any preacher. And we talk about the fact that it was prophesied that Jesus would be a descendant of David. We're going back to this prophecy. Now, here is a wonderful idea, a wonderful proposal that David makes to God out of a perfectly Wonderful motive. And God says no to it. Sometimes we can bring proposals or ideas that God can look at and they're wonderful. Nobody, not even as spiritual a person as whoever is Nathan the prophet in our life can see anything wrong with what it is that we want to do with God. And our ideas and our plans can, I mean, meet these, these very strict criteria. This is a great idea. Your heart is pure. You're doing it as a servant of the Lord. And God can still say no to it. But what the passage teaches us, and he does say no. He said no to me about quite a few good ideas that I had. But always when he says no. And you look at it and say, how could God say no to that? Always realize that if he says no to even something good that we are proposing to him, it is only that he might say yes to something even better. That's the way that he is. Sometimes, and I think we all have experienced it if we've walked with the Lord longer than six weeks or so. And you look back and you see God slamming one door after another. Say, Lord, he would have made a perfectly good husband. She would have made a great wife. That would have been a great house to buy. They need lots of missionaries. In Africa or wherever. And he closes the doors and he closes the doors and he closes the doors. And it can be so confusing to us because our motives are right toward God and toward the kingdom of God. What we're proposing to him is great. And it can really leave us in a a state of confusion. And what we have to do at times like that is give the Lord time. Because how often in that place we wait six days or six weeks or six months or six years 
And then the thing that God really wanted to do comes on the scene and we realize, thank you, God, that you didn't say yes to any other these other things because it would have put me on a completely different path from what I now see is a more excellent thing that you wanted to do in my life and through my life. It's the truth about him. I'm not a guy that gets up here and just likes to say positive things so everybody feels positive. He's already demonstrated in the giving of his son. When God says no to even a good thing in our life, it's because he's got something even better in mind. And all of this leaves David completely undone. David went in and he sat before the Lord, probably into the tent that had been fashioned there, that he had put there in, in Jerusalem. And he just sits down and, and he begins just to talk with God. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes that happens. I mean, God is just so good to you. You just sit down and you hardly know what to say to him. He said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house, insignificant family that I come from? And you have brought me this far. And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you not only have made me the king, but you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? He's talking about David's lineage all the way down through history. Because the fullest fulfillment of the prophecy given to David that the Messiah and the king who would reign forever, the, f the greatest fulfillment, the fullest fulfillment of it in Jesus will be yet at his second coming. He establishes his kingdom reign, the earth. And now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. David said, what you have just revealed to me. Now, remember, David, he he cares because God has called him to this. But he. All that mattered to him, he didn't care about a crown. He didn't care about power. He didn't care about any of that stuff. All he cared about was God. The things of God, God's plan in human history. And God then reveals that this is the place that his bloodline is going to have in human history. Put yourself in his place. The Messiah is going to come through my bloodline because God has chosen to do it. Ah, that's amazing to have that kind of a promise. And it left him speechless. It's hard to leave David speechless. You read the Psalms, most of which are written by him. And he had something to say about every situation, every circumstance, every high, every low, every in-between in life. He could so eloquently, in his relationship with God, capture it and communicate it. And yet this thing is so big and so wonderful. He said, I don't know what to say. It's a beautiful place to be in life. Responding to the grace of God. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things. I didn't deserve it to make your servant know them. And therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. He just praises the Lord. And who is like your people, like Israel? He begins to just say, Israel is is blessed to have you as their God, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people, Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. 
And now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, I'm not worthy of it. Don't do this. I can't accept this great gift. And there's no false humility there. He said, establish it forever and do as you have said. He's excited to glom onto that promise. And so let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. And therefore your servant is founded in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this goodness to your servant. And now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. And so he says it about four different ways. You know, count me in. I'm excited about this. And you've promised it. And and uh, let's go for it. So this is the beautiful, beautiful chapter in David's spiritual life. Chapter 8. And after this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and he subdued them. And David took uh, Metheg Amma from the hand of the Philistines. And so in chapter eight, in the early uh, part of the chapter, we're going to see how God uses David to expand the kingdom of Israel even beyond its borders. And so he uh, has defeated the Philistines in the past. But he's defeated the Philistines in the past when the Philistines invaded Israel. Here for the first time, David goes into Philistine territory and this city Metheg Amma is a reference to Gath. Remember, David had some history in Gath, lived there for a while, feigned himself to be a crazy man for a while, spit drooling down in his beard and all to escape. Achish in there being discovered as a, a Jew in that, that territory. And, and so here he is. He's back in that place and going to attack the city. God works all things together for good. You'd think God couldn't work any of that together for good. David's kind of backslide going back to join up with the Philistines or going into Gath and feigning insanity. He knew the whole layout of the whole city. So this now is very significant because David takes the battle to the Philistines, goes to one of the great walled cities of the Philistines and he conquers it and he defeats and breaks the back of the Philistine army and the Philistines being a constant threat to the safety of the nation of Israel. And so they are really put on the back burner as a result of this defeat. And then he defeated Moab. And following the defeat of Moab, and Moab is an uh, ancient land, it refers to the land on the um, uh, eastern side of the uh, Dead Sea in modern-day Jordan today. So he defeated Moab and the Moabites, and following that defeat, he forced the, the, the men that survived the battle down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and uh, brought tribute. Sometimes you'll uh, read, uh, somebody will use the term decimate. Um, the, the people were decimated or the army was decimated. And it's a reference to the fact that uh, when an army, an army that's been decimated is an army that's been defeated and one out of ten has been put to death. So uh, th that's that's what it's referring to. So it's a pretty strong defeat. Here's an even stronger defeat where David defeats and he takes the, the, the prisoners here and he kills two thirds of them. And, and, and one of the things that happens is it raises a question of why would he do that? Because it wasn't characteristic of him uh, to do that. One of the in, in the uh, uh, Mishnah, the Jewish uh, interpretation of the scriptures in the Mishnah, it's kind of 
there's a sanctified speculation that goes on related to this because everybody looks at it and realizes the Moabites must have committed some great atrocity against the Jews or against David for him to do this. And it's speculated that perhaps the Moabites had killed David's parents while he was on the lamb. David come, came, he, he had Moabite blood in his lineage coming from uh, as a descendant of Ruth. And, and so he delivered his parents to the safekeeping of the Moabites while he was fleeing Saul and was unable to assure their safety. And then we never hear of them again. And so some believe that they were, his parents were killed by the Moabites and this was an act of retribution. We don't really know why David did it. The scripture is silent concerning it. We do know that the effect of this to destroy this much of a standing army would have set the Moabites back at least a generation, probably two generations from ever being able, certainly in David's uh, time in history, of being able to put an army on the field again. You have to have birth rates. You have to have uh, boys being born. They have to get to adult age to be able to fight all of these things. And so it would have removed them on a practical level from being any kind of threat to Israel, at least for a couple of generations. And then David also defeated uh, Hadad Ezer, the son of Rehob, uh, the king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. And so he apparently went out uh, to uh, take his territory out there uh, at the river Euphrates. David took advantage of that uh, troop movement by Hadad Ezer and, and attacked him, defeated him. And David took uh, from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, uh, just an overwhelming defeat. And also David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. And so the tendon was cut in the back legs of the horses that uh, wouldn't allow them to go into battle uh, any further, but spared their lives. And then when the Syrians uh, of Damascus, they came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, and David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. And then David put garrisons uh, in Syria of Damascus. And so Damascus comes under David's uh, rule and Syria became David's servants and brought tribute. That is, they brought they kind of became a colony to Israel and they brought taxes. And so the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadad-Ezer, and he brought them to Jerusalem, uh, also from uh, Beta and from uh, uh, Barothai, cities of Hadad-Ezer. King David took a large amount of bronze. And so he's not only defeating armies, but he's accumulating vast material wealth. And when Toy, king of uh, Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer. He was excited about that. So he sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him. So he sends a very high official, uh, his son, in, in their kingdom and uh, sent him to greet David and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him for Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. So this guy said D David's defeat of him uh, took a big problem off of his plate. And so Joram, the son, brought with him uh, as a kind of a sign that the fact that Toy wanted to have uh, uh, of his expression of his appreciation toward David for defeating this king, but he also wanted to have, uh, you know, a diplomatic relationships with David. So he brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold and articles of bronze. And King David also dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. David cracks me up here. He said, I, I don't see the crack up in this particular passage. God has said to David, you cannot build the temple for me. Your son is going to build it. 
So what does David do? David does everything short of build it. He puts the plans together for it to be built. He accumulates all of the wealth, all of the gold, all of the silver, all of the bronze that will be needed in the building of that temple. So that when his son comes to the place and he doesn't know which son it's going to be at this point in time, all that son will need to do. He won't have to start looking for where are we going to get enough gold and silver and all of this. It'll already be sitting there. David did everything that he could do. Okay, Lord, I submit to that. You told me I can't build it, but I'll do everything but build it. David could have, Lord could have spoken to him and said, listen, you're not going to build the temple. And then he just moped the rest of his life. I'm not, if I can't build the temple, I'm not doing nothing. David came from the East Coast. But he doesn't do that. He looks at it and says, God's got that for somebody else, but he's got this for me. And what he's got for me, I'm going to do it with all my heart. And he did it. And he just caused an absolute river of wealth to pour into Jerusalem for that day. And ultimately, David is going to give from his own money, his own resource to the building of the temple. I think it's estimated at a hundred million dollars. She writes a check for a hundred million dollars toward it out of his own wealth. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. And so he continues to defeat all of these different enemies and threats to Israel. And then he also put garrisons in Edom. Uh, through, uh, throughout all Edom, he put uh, garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord prepared, uh, preserved David wherever he went. So this great uh, favor of God upon his life, securing the safety of the nation of Israel from her enemies. And so David ruled uh, over all of Israel. And Israel's boundaries are very, very large now. And David administered judgment and justice to all of his people. And here we have his cabinet. Uh, we have cabinets in our federal government today. And here's David's cabinet. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. He was the minister of defense. Jehoshaphat, the jumper, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. That would be kind of your chief of staff, the person who would keep the records and keep David's schedule and tell him what he needed to do and what was on the agenda. That's what a recorder was. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, they were the priests. They were over the spiritual side of things related to the nation. Saraiah was the scribe, so he was kind of the uh, secretary of state and handled the administrative side of the kingdom. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, he was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. And the Cherethites and the Pelethites, were, they were kind of David's secret service. They were the men that were closest to him for protecting him. And then David also had his sons in the administration. You know what's fascinating to me about this, in terms of David's cabinet, is look at how lean the government is. I know it's attractive to you. There are no deficits here. This is a pretty, pretty lean government. I mean, he's ruling over all of Israel. He's ruling over nations that are uh, paying him tribute and that he is now responsible for law and order in far beyond the boundaries. And this is he's got a hand, two handfuls of men that are helping him do it. It's such a lean administration. And the reason that it's so lean and it could be so lean is because the law of Moses was the standard for right and wrong in the hearts of the people of Israel at that time. That's what the people were made up of when they wanted to know what's right, what's wrong. How do I solve this problem with my neighbor? How do we handle this? How do we handle that? It wasn't up for debate. New laws didn't have to be developed. 
All they had to do was go back to the law of Moses. And at this time in Israel's history, God's people had a respect and obedience toward the law of Moses and God's definitions of right and wrong. And I would contend that the further a nation gets away from the law of Moses in terms of governing a secular nation or the unsaved, the further it moves in terms of redefining God's definitions of good and bad and right and wrong, the more administration it's going to need, the more and the more and the more and the more levels of government that it's going to need, and the more and the more man-made laws that it's going to need, until it will break a nation to try and solve the problems that that nation creates for itself by moving God's definitions of right and wrong from its foundation and from its thinking. We haven't even begun to see the problems that are coming our way apart from a revival and a return from the nonsense and a a moving from the nonsense and back to these definitions that have withstood the test of time and have built great civilizations and made great cities and made great families and brought stability to the world. And so we see it. I mean, we see it in our own nation. The more you undermine this book, this God, his definitions, you've got to keep on adding government because you're going to create problems for yourself. Chapter 9. You'll allow me a moment, please. David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David now is filled with this desire in his heart to show kindness to some descendant of Saul for the sake of Saul's son, Jonathan. So David has become very, very prosperous. He's become uh, great, and he's become prosperous and great. It all appears to remind him of a covenant that he had made with Jonathan years later. And that covenant that he had made with Jonathan years, uh, years earlier, that covenant that he had made with him years earlier, is recorded in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 11 through 16. And Jonathan said to David, let me read it to you. Come, let us go out into the field. And so both of them went out into the field. Perhaps you remember this. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord God is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is a good, is good toward David, and I do not send to tell you, may the Lord do so and more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord will be with you as he has been with my father. And here's the covenant Jonathan made with David. And you shall... Not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live that I may not die once you become king, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house or my descendants forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. And now God has cut off all of the enemies of David He's established, he's prospered, just as Jonathan said would be the case. And as David thinks about this, he remembers that he had made a covenant to do good to Jonathan and to his descendants. And so now he looks for an opportunity to do good to some descendant uh, of Jonathan, except for the fact that he doesn't know of any living descendants of Jonathan. And so there was a servant and, and so he asks, is there anyone who's left of the house of Saul? He asks his advisors, because I want to show kindness based on my covenant with Jonathan. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, 
And when they had called him, so somebody apparently said, I don't know. I don't know if there's any living descendants of Jonathan, but there's a, a former servant of Saul by the name of Ziba. And if anyone would know, he would know. And so they said, there's this, a, a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So they when they had called him to David, said, we'll bring him and let's find out. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. I'm your servant. And then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Is there any living descendant of Saul and of Jonathan? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And so uh, he, he declared and and. and the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lo-Debar. So Ziba reveals to David that there is a son by Jonathan by the name of Mephibosheth. And he is a perfect candidate for receiving the kindness of David because he is crippled. He is lame in his feet. And we know from elsewhere in the scriptures that when the Philistines fought against Saul and Jonathan and the nation of Israel and, and defeated them uh, in, in that great battle, news of the victory of the Philistines reached Gibeah where, Mephib uh, 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 where Mephib uh, Mephibosheth was. And the news comes there that Saul's been killed and Jonathan's been killed. And he's probably about five years old. And the nurse who is in charge of him realizes this is bad news because what the Philistines are going to do is they're going to come into the land and try and find every blood descendant of Saul and kill him. So she picks the boy up and she starts to run and she either drops the boy or both of them fall. And apparently both of his ankles are broken as a result of the fall. And not having necessary medical attention for the broken ankles, they set all goofy and heal up all wrong, and he can't walk. And that day, to be lame like that, I mean, you in the ancient world, I mean, you're dependent upon family support. So he's a perfect candidate for receiving this kind of, of kindness. And so Ziba revealed there in verse 4 that this Mephibosheth, is living in a home of Makir in a very barren region uh, known as Lodabar. And then David, in verse 5, sends for him. The Bible declares concerning itself, God declares concerning this book, that the volume of the book testifies to Christ. Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day and he said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify of me. I think one of the most amazing things that's going to happen in heaven is one day we're going to understand this Bible from Genesis to Revelation and understand that every line, every jot, every tittle, every concept, every precept, every chapter, every verse speaks fully of Christ. No verse or section of scripture has been properly exhausted until it has pointed us to Christ. That's how thoroughly the book is about him in one way or another. And this encounter between Mephibosheth and David is a beautiful picture of a sinner before the son of David, that is Jesus Christ. It's one of the beautiful pictures in all of the Old Testament. Mephibosheth's name is made up of two words. And the two words mean this. Word number one means to break in pieces. And word number two means shame. He comes from a shamed and a rejected family, as has every sinner as a descendant of Adam and Eve. He is the picture of a human life whose life is full of 
shame and is falling apart. We notice that he had experienced a fall and he couldn't walk. Every single person in this world, because of the fall of Adam and Eve, have had a, a been afflicted as a result of that fall in the Garden of Eden. And that fall has left each of us lame and unable to walk as God has originally intended for us. It's interesting to notice also that David seeks Mephibosheth out, even as Christ came into the world, to seek us out. The greatness of our need to show us the kindness that he knew we would need but wouldn't expect. And then we notice that David desired to communicate the kindness of God to Mephibosheth, even as Jesus came into the world to reveal and to communicate the loving heart of God toward uh, us. Mephibosheth, we're told in verse 4, was living in Lodabar. The word Lodabar means not a pasture. That's a funny thing to call a place, isn't it? This is not pasture land. <laughs> in other words, it's barren, absolutely barren. So a perfect description of here is this man who is broken in pieces, shameful background, all of this. He's living in a place that has no pasture. It's pastureless. It's barren. Perfect description of the spiritual condition of the world. Barren wilderness. Devoid of any meaning or purpose in terms of, of the true meaning and purposes of, of life. It's just empty and it's frustrating. And so the Lord, or David then sends in verse 5, sent and had Mephibosheth brought to him out of the house of Mekur and the son of uh, Amiel from Lodabar. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he fell on his face and he prostrated himself. When he comes before David, he thinks David is going to kill him. Because in that ancient world, when you became a king, you would kill any of the descendants of the former king so they would not become a threat to you. So he is absolutely convinced that David has called him and has searched him out, found out his name, where he lived, brought him to Jerusalem, now to kill him. You think about how many sinners... Don't want to come to Christ because they're convinced that if they come to the God of the Bible, that the only interest that God could have in them is to kill them right on the spot. You think about how many people come to their conclusions about God from everywhere except the Bible. I mean, they listen to their cultural anthropology teacher talk about it they, and, and this Professor and that professor and this person and that neighbor and this friend and this family member and all. And they believe all of these lies about God and how a sinner and someone like us couldn't come before him except that he'd kill us right on the spot because he knows what we've been and what we've done. And that's what Mephibosheth thinks is going to happen. David isn't like that, and the son of David certainly isn't like that. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here's your servant. And David said to him, do not fear. How good to hear that from David. I didn't call you to kill you. For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. Mephibosheth, I'm going to show you kindness on the basis of a covenant that was made long before you were ever born. And for us as Christians, we have been shown kindness on the basis of a covenant that God made long before we were even born. And that's why God could speak of us as being saved from before the foundation of the earth. And I will restore to you all of the land of Saul, your grandfather, 
and you shall eat bread at my table continually. And so he invites him to become a part of his family. I'm giving you it breaks great two great gifts to Mephibosheth. I'm going to give you the land that belongs to your family. But you're not going to have to eat from what comes from that land. You'll eat at my table for the rest of your life. I'm making you a part of the family. I remember living in a foster home in Sonoma for a year with my twin brother. And this passage always reminds me uh, of it. It's not that perky of a story, but anyway, we were there for a full year. And for one full year, we never ate one meal with that family. That family ate in another room. And we ate in a separate room at a table by ourselves. Not one single time did they ever make an effort to make us a part of that family. But I think about how different God is. Somehow, I don't blame them. I watched my brother eat too. It would have been very hard on all of their appetites. And I was worse. But it makes me think about the kind of people that God is willing to bring into his family and to gather around his table. It's beautiful. And then he bowed himself and he said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? He says, I don't deserve this. Apparently in the ancient world, calling yourself a dead dog was to say, I'm, you know, uh, you know, less than nothing. So this expression of unworthiness. And of course, we feel that towards the grace that God shows to us. I hope you don't think God got a great deal when you got saved. He got a full-blown sinner and a lot of work when he saved me. So I understand what Mephibosheth is saying here on an even greater degree. And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belongs to Saul and his house. And you, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. And you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now, Ziba had seven, uh, 15 sons and 20 servants. So he apparently had been working the land for his own profit. It was a big operation. That's a lot of servants and a lot of sons. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. And as for Mephibosheth, says, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. It's funny, over and over again, the thing that David just keeps coming back to is that in greater than returning any kind of land or any kind of property that belonged to Saul, the great thing that David knew that he was extending to Mephibosheth was the right and the privilege to sit at a king's table. He repeats it over and over again in the passage. This man is never going to have to think about a meal again nor is his family. It would be like getting the ultimate pension from the government that wasn't bankrupt. Remember the Israel, I've got to keep coming back to this. I read the news. So there, I mean, Israel is flush with money at this point in time and prosperity. And so this was like the ultimate security to be made a part of this family. And, and the whole idea here and, and behind it is the desire that David has and it, it is a shadow of the desire of God toward us. They doesn't just save us to give us a bunch of things back that we've lost or our descendants have lost, but he saves us for relationship. He saves us to make us a part of a family priceless. Now, Ziba, he agrees to all of this and he's a dirty Rotten scoundrel, and we'll find out about that a little bit later. But he agrees to it, the proposition. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. And so Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. And he was lame 
and both his feet. And so this became Mephibosheth's new life, just as Christ has brought us into a new life, making us a part of his family, making us uh, uh, one in his family. One of the great pictures in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ and, and how it speaks to him as a shadow of the greater realities that are ours in Christ. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. The worship team come forward. That'd be great. Father, we give you praise tonight for how good you have been to us in Christ Jesus. We're humbled by it, Lord. We're humbled by our salvation story, which we know. How you reached into our life and you worked and you worked and you worked until the light went on. And we were willing to make you our Lord and our Savior. And that attention to detail that you had. And we just praise you, Lord, for the life that you have brought us into And then, Lord, to think all the way in the future of what is ours forever and ever in heaven. And then likewise, as we read tonight with Mephibosheth in this covenant, to be able to look and to realize that all the way back into eternity, you saw us individually and personally and knew even before the fall of man that we would need this salvation And this forgiveness. And you provided it for us, Lord. We thank you for your love for us, Lord. And how you have blessed us. Thank you for the privilege of being able to be seated at your table. And being a part of your family. Thank you for being our Heavenly Father. And thank you for being our God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.